If you've been listening to my show, you know that the importer on the back of the bottle is one of the surest ways to guarantee a quality bottle of wine. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about Taub Family Selections. Taub Family Selections is a dynamic, fourth-generation, family-owned wine import company with a truly incredible portfolio of fine wines from 11 countries. These wines not only embody the unique terroir in which they are produced, but the passion and integrity of each family member involved from vineyard to table. Notable estates include Mastro Berardino, Bertani, Travellini, Ferrari, Coldorcia, Trimbach, Jean-Luc Colombo, Jean-Michel Jarin, among many other renowned producers. They also have from Bordeaux, Lafitte Rothschild from the left bank, and on the right bank, they have Chateau Lafleur. I'm telling you, these guys have it all. To find out even more, go to TaubFamilySelections.com. That's T-A-U-B, FamilySelections.com. Ross Knoll Vineyard Wines is a female-owned company which produces artisanal Pinot Noirs from exceptional vineyards in the Russian River Valley, handcrafted by winemaker Justin Seidenfeld. I recently had their 2021 Vintage Rosé, and I thought it was fantastic. Go to rossknollvineyard.com and discover their rare production, a 2021 Mount Eden clone white Pinot Noir. Also, Join their waitlist for the 2021 Pinot Noir, which is presently aging in barrels and will be released later this year. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the Mavericks the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ and welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is the award-winning Master Somalier, co-founder of Frasca Food and Wine Group, Pizzeria Locale, and Scarpetta Wine Company, and a leader in the hospitality industry, Bobby Stuckey. In 2000, Bobby worked with world-renowned chef Thomas Keller at the French Laundry in California and led the restaurant's team to earn the James Beard Foundation's Outstanding Wine Service Award. In that same year, San Francisco Magazine recognized Bobby as Wine Director of the Year. Bobby went on to open a number of award-winning restaurants of his own, including Frasca, which received the 2019 James Beard Award in Outstanding Service. And Bobby is a co-founder of the Independent Restaurant Coalition, which launched in March of 2020 to give a voice to privately owned non-chain restaurants. Welcome, Bobby. MJ, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, tell everybody about the wine we're drinking this afternoon. Sure. Um, well, um, it wasn't weather permitting since it's like sleeting and snowing outside, and I brought this delicious white wine from Friuli Venezia Giulia, but it's still delicious. Uh, this is Ronco de Nemitz Chardonnay Sole. So mm. this is old vine Chardonnay planted in the Colle Orientale in Friuli, um, run by this, you know, we're a day after... Uh, International Women's Day, so mm -hmm. I, I, we're, I'm a day late, but this is from Serena Palazzola. She's the matriarch. Um, she's a dear friend of mine. She's like a big sister to me. Uh, her husband, Christian Batot, and her three incredible sons uh, run this winery and love it. And they're, they're dear friends, not just of mine, but they've become friends of the whole Frosca team and 
many of our guests and it's been great for um, me and Lachlan to to really watch her boys grow up and now they're stepping into it it's great well I was I didn't know what it was I figured it was going to be Italian if it was really from Friuli um, but when I smelled it I was like wow this it gets still around, but it's very Burgundian. They're making a really serious Chardonnay there. Dude, it's serious. You're so right. I mean, it's like I actually used not this bottling, but a different bottling, the 2014 Ronco Basso. They have a couple different sites of Chardonnay in a seminar in Aspen a few years ago, and it was blind to a bunch of the American sommeliers, and many people thought it was great white Burgundy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really detailed. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right. So again, thank you so much for being here. Um, you know, we connected through Instagram. I don't know what you started following me for some reason when I had like 900 followers, you were one of them and you were always very generous. If I slipped into your DM, you answer questions. You're, you are just really a generous and you live and breathe hospitality as far as I can tell. So, um, we're just glad we got this time and we can sit down with you. So we like to start a beginning. So, um, are you from Colorado originally, or where are you from originally? No, I'm originally from Arizona. I um, first moved to Colorado uh, in the mid-90s to uh, go work at the Little Nell Hotel in Aspen. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I was there until 2000, and then I uh, left the Little Nell to go work for Thomas and Laura at the French Laundry, Thomas Keller and Laura Cunningham. My wife and I moved out there and uh, worked there. And then while we were out there, it was kind of a... I could have either done two things. I could have either spent the rest of my career with Thomas and Laura, which would have been great. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were really wonderful to me, great leaders. Um, or I could have gone and done my own restaurant. And I knew I wanted to do my own restaurant. And that would seem like the right moment because they were just about to open Per Se and, and Bouchon Vegas. And I thought if I was going to leave Thomas and Laura, this would be the time to do it before that launched off. So... Um, and at the same time, uh, uh, Danette's mom passed away, and her dad was living in Colorado. And uh, I thought we just thought, let's if we're going to open a restaurant, let's let's go to call go back to Colorado so we can be close to Deck, her dad, Richard Alberico. And um, the rest is history. Lachlan came with us, and it's it's been a fun ride. Well, cool. Let's uh, let's go back. What was it like running up in Arizona? Because I know you're a runner. Um, did yeah. you run in? High school and stuff yeah. like that out in Arizona. Yeah, I was a I was an interesting. Uh, my parents are amazing, and they're really some of my inspiration in life. Both of them, for different reasons. My mom for her incredible tenacity, and my dad for his incredible positivity. Mm. And I was a really um, how do I say this? Well, I, I'm dyslexic and, and, and ADD, and I was really I struggled as a kid a lot in academia. And pretty, pretty much two things, I think, saved my life. One was running, and two was busing tables. And I found them both quite young. Uh, running first, my parents, um, my dad took me to a 10K in 1976, so I was seven years old. And he's like, this would be a good thing for him to do. And I did it, I liked it. And then my mom said, well, I'll go do those with you. And then my dad's like, I'll go do them with you. And then when my brother got to be seven, because he's two years younger, they made him do it. And it was just like, it was like the Partridge family of mediocre runners, you know? Like we all, none of us were great, but we all tried really, really hard. 
And then I, I realized as I got older, I think my dad liked it because it was an excuse that he could like crack a beer at like eight in the morning as soon as you're done. <laughs> right. It's it's like carbo loaded. You get, you get yeah. bagels and beers after a tin can. Yeah, my dad just true. loved that. I'd always be finding him like, it was great. <laughs> so, I mean, you run a lot. I mean, <clears throat> and I've, you know, because I, I follow you and you, you have a wonderful Instagram, just like you really detail your life. Like you get the love for your wife, Danette. You get like your love and reverence for like long distance running. Um, but you say mediocre. I, I'm looking at you. Don't look like you know a mediocre runner, man. So like like what, what like what's your like what's your like best five k? Um, I don't know. My best five k is my my best marathon. Um, you know, you got to do pre four. I'm 52, so yep. uh, pre 40 years of age. I ran like a 245 That's uh, no joke. New York. That's no joke, people. And I was like 39 years old when I did that. Shit. And then, uh, you know, ran a couple in the low 250s now that I'm in, in 50, I'm 50. So that's kind of where where I am. I mean, I, I, I try really hard. Um, I'm not built like a runner. I'm a little bit uh, bulkier. Uh, my brother likes to remind me of that. He's like, dude, look at me. I've got the right physique for this. I'm like, <laughs> shut up. But... um. Yeah, we try. I, the whole family tries hard. I love people. Two forty nine is that's no joke of a marathon. Under three hours is that's legit. So that's cool. So, you know, your you family starts doing ten k's, and you know, you also mentioned busting tables. But how did you get into cycling? Because you were uh, like a domestic pro cyclist at one point, right? Yeah, it, it's a little bit embarrassing. Um, my, uh, I was running cross country and, um, matter of fact, my high school cross country coach, coach Renawicki came into my restaurant this summer. I hadn't seen him since 1987. Oh and he reminded me of this story. Um, I, my parents were out of town and, uh, pretty reckless behavior on my parents part to like leave my brother and I in high school to punk rock, like nutcases. It's like a uh, 80s movie setup. Oh, know? it is. Uh, it was an 80s movie setup. I mean, I think that's where my brother got a lot of his material. And uh, I, uh, I, oh, I, I don't know if I should say the whole detail, but uh, I, my brother and I were having a great weekend, maybe too great of a weekend, and I dislocated my kneecap. Oh, and uh, my parents, I think, were like, I think they were like in like Hong Kong. Like it's not like they could like just whip back. And I got injured, and my my I was couldn't run cross country, and the the best rehabilitation was swimming. So I did that because I wanted it to recover, so I could finish the cross country season. And uh, there was a a girl on our cross country team, Katie Ewing, and uh, she was doing triathlons, and so I was swimming. And she's like, "You should do a triathlon this spring." And I was like, "Nah," and she's like, "No, you should." And so she got a couple of us in high school to do a triathlon with her. And I really liked it. And uh, I was okay. At, I was pretty good at it. Like, uh, I really liked it. And so I wanted to run Division One in college. And I was just not quite there. I wasn't, I wasn't good enough. And uh, I went to Northern Arizona University, which had a – and still to this day oh, has – a great cross-country team. Amazing. They just won their – they've won yeah. four out of five national championships yeah. in the last five years. Yeah. Back when I was in going into college, it was the same era, same type of era, and I couldn't make it on their Division One team, but I could keep doing triathlons, and I, I lucked out and 
had a couple good results in triathlons. And one of the guys that I would train with, he's like, dude, you should try just, uh, just cycling. Like you should do some of these local bike races and, um, you know, triathlons are expensive and they're expensive to get to and things like that. And I was a waiter in college and, and, uh, so I started doing some local bike races and I, uh, had some success with it. And, uh, I was never like a natural. I'm a little bit bigger than most cyclists. I lived in call. Uh, I lived in Arizona, but at altitude, so I was. I would, I didn't fit any of the molds. Like someone usually my size would be good at criteriums and field sprinting. I, I didn't have that fast twitch. I was kind of a grinder. But I, I went and raced uh, uh, the 1992 season as an amateur over in Spain, um, where there was a with a guy named Jeff Winkler and Michael Alvarado. And I came back after that, and um, I had some some moderate success enough that um, I got a domestic pro contract with a domestic trade team called Shackley, and it was a really great experience. It was amazing. But the best part about it, the best part about it was there was a, for a pro cyclist, there was an uh, older cyclist on the team. You know, this is relative. He, uh, his name was Kent Bostick. He actually made the Olympic team in 1996 at the age of 41 mm. as a full-time mm. hydrology engineer. And he was like, I was like, oh my God, I got a pro contract. And he and I had won a, he had won a race with me helping him at a stage race. And we were splitting up the cash at dinner. And I was like, oh, should I quit my job as a waiter? And he said, please do not. <laughs> He goes, you are so, you love the hospitality industry mm. so much. And I don't want to bum you out, Bobby, but yes, you have a pro contract. But being a domestic pro, this is in 1993 or whatever, you're not going to be able to retire on that. So you're so lucky that you have something you love. Stay with that. And it really, I, I think, can't really help me in that path. That's really cool. That's so cool. Uh, as you were telling your story, I, I was reminded, because like I said, I used to run in high school and stuff and used to read all the magazines. A lot of people don't realize Lance Armstrong started out as a triathlete. Oh, yeah. I used to race against him. Yeah, I figured I figured you probably did because we're and about we're, the same we're, age. Yeah, we're, we, he's, uh, he's actually Scoob, my brother's age. Okay. Like almost to the week. They're yeah. t he's two years younger. Yeah. So me and my brother and Lance are all within a week birthdays-wise. Mm -hmm. But I'm two years older. But uh, yeah, Lance was a phenom. He was amazing. He's a he's a, a a good friend of mine, and look, that guy. Look, I love him. Some people don't. Uh, if if you're someone whose family's been affected by cancer, like my family has, he's a he's a he's really there for mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he was a great. Yeah. And and to say something about Lance is like when he was 17 years old, he was already Lance. Maybe not winning the Tour de France, but winning big, big mm -hmm. pro triath triathlons in high school. And he was just wired. Mm -hmm. He thought it was normal to be a 17-year-old competing against mm -hmm. Dave Scott, Scott Tinley. All he, back in the day, guys. Yeah, <laughs> he was so wired that way. Yeah, yeah. And that's what makes him him. Yeah. And I tell people, because I know I have friends who Olympic trials and Olympians, I'm like, People say this thing about steroids, but you've never been at that level. You don't know what you would do to win. Yeah. So I, I when people just blake it, like, say things, I'm like, you 
most people don't know people at that level. Yeah. And like you said, someone like that who's wired to win is going to do what it takes to win. So yeah. um, I still have respect for him. So whatever. If I lose a listener, that's okay. <laughs> hey, listen, and for the lose the oh, losing the listener, the listener that might leave for that. I mean, I think you have to look outside of someone's sport. Yep. And look what he's done for so many people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's. He he's awesome. Yeah, the live strong. I mean, until this game, I mean that how much that helped people and where the money went. So, I I, I, I have a good, great analogy for for you of him as a person that he get. He, no one knows this except for me, him, now you, and the family he did this for. We had a we had a a woman working at Pizza Locale. Her fiance. She's about to get married. Her fiance's. Uh, brother and dad going into the holidays stage four cancer mm. like the whole family was just torn apart and i was telling lance this this story and he goes can you get me their names i said yeah of course about an hour later i get this video sent of lance saying you know so and so and so and so i know it's the holidays I know your whole family's really shook up with what's going on. And like, really like, mm. like no one asked him to do that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I just send it to them. And he goes, you bet. I sent it to the employee and it like made their holidays. Like he wasn't getting, he wasn't putting on social media. He mm-hmm. was just caring about people that were suffering with cancer. Wow. That's amazing. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that story, man. Um, And I want to talk about, staying in hospitality because you said one of your mentors like you love this stay in it and you mentioned you started running and bussing tables around the same time so what was your first job in arizona in hospitality <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, so that's I, miles that's a lot right? <laughs> i i got a I, I got kicked out of uh jesuit school or as mr positivity larry the lizard my dad likes to say i got promoted to be a public school guy you got to just love the positivity there. Your son gets kicked out of Jesuit school and you're like, well, you got promoted to public school. Um, I, my mom's like, well, you need to get a job. Well, it's quite hot in uh, Phoenix, uh, 120 degrees. I'm not a huge fan of the heat. And the first job I tried to get when I was like 13 years old was if you see the orange trees in Phoenix, they have to all be painted white at the bottom. To, right. So that was a summer job. And it was horrible. It was oh like 120 God. degrees. And I'm out there and I'm like, this is not for me. I'm not an agricultural kid. I'm going to go get a job in the restaurant. There's air conditioning. And my mom's like, mm, it, that might actually be hotter. And I went to work for this lady. Her, She was a, a, a restaurateur and chef named Demetra. And she had like a fine dining Greek restaurant. And for the first year and a half, I couldn't tell because of her thick accent, if I was doing something right or wrong, I was constantly being yelled at, sometimes positive, sometimes <laughs> negative. I just thought that was the world we lived in. And it was certified. It was just like early 80s. It was nuts. But then I went to work. Um, my second, that was my first job, but really my second job really impacted me. I went to work for, and the, I, I really grew up in a, in a weird world because I thought all entrepreneurs like my first three restaurants i worked for were all run by women and this mm. is in the 80s wow. and so um i went to work for a lady named carol Steele. 
She had uh, two restaurants called Sea Steel, and she was way ahead of her time. This is in like 84, 85. Like she had these restaurants with like marketplaces and little cafes and little retail shop, really cool. And she had um, a lady named Krissa Robertson, who was her executive chef. So she she was like all in. Incredible executive chef, that this woman, Krissa. And uh, at the time, Chris's boyfriend, who ended up becoming her husband and then ex-husband, but her boyfriend, Tom Kaufman, um, ran the, the, the front of the dining room. Okay. And I just, that was, I found my people. You know, it was like for a, someone who has struggled so hard in academia, like I, I, it's not like I didn't try hard. I was trying really hard to be average mm-hmm. in school. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I just, I just loved it. And um, that really sent me into what I still believe uh, f- almost 40 years later um, is an industry that really gets beat up by a lot of people, but it can be so great for, for many different people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was, that was it. Do you think the, um, the fast pace suited your personality? Cause that, I think, I think that's one thing a lot of people, don't they, they think even in fine dining, like how much it's can be hectic behind the scenes. Like if you're oh, yeah. doing serious service, like oh yeah, you gotta think fast and move fast and 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 the fact that you're moving, you think that really suits your personality as well. One hundred percent. Yeah. yeah I, I remember the first time I expedited, uh someone was like a, a college kid was teaching me how to expedite and he had like a p- breakdown on a Friday night. <laughs> I mean I mean, and this guy might have had a breakdown for other reasons, right. like chemically too. Like he definitely was living the whole '80s program. <laughs> I mean, I the whole '80s program, and, uh, which is true. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just a, it was a part of that yeah. that time period. I mean, this is a guy who used an excuse to call in sick. He said that he put the wrong acne cream on his face and he had a reaction. After I saw him go out that night, <laughs> I was like, "That's not a, the wrong acne cream. That was something else." But the the guy had a meltdown on the on the line, and I just and this is when we had the green handwritten tickets, yes, yeah, yeah, not yeah. POS system. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I had like twenty six tickets up there, and I was like, okay, I'm doing it. And it's I, I so you're MJ, you're so right. That energy yeah. was so good for me. Yeah, I love a good expediter. People, that that's like. It's just like boom, 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 boom. You know. But that's a great story. The '80s broke acne cream my ass. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I remember coming into work and they're like, "Oh yeah, he's he's really sick. Something happened with his acne cream." I was like, "Wait, come on." I mean, okay. so so now when I have young kids call in sick or use a, a, a personal day for something, I'm like, you know, you really. We would get busted in the '80s without social media. You really got to be oh, careful. Oh, I know, right? I know, right? <laughs> like, you're at the Fox Theater seeing music the night before. You, you did not get, you know. That's hilarious. <laughs> so you know, you you said you found your people like in the front of the house, and um, when was like when did wine start to come in the picture for you? Well, um, that gentleman I mentioned, Tom Kaufman. Yep. He um he was really into wine. And this is, you know, in, in, in Scottsdale, Arizona, there wasn't a scene for that then. And then when I, about the time I went to college in Flagstaff to Northern Arizona University, 
he and Krissa moved to LA okay. and he became, and this was like such a big deal for our little restaurant community in Phoenix. He became the sommelier of uh, the Hotel Bel Air. Mm-hmm. And, and Krissa went to work at, uh, I think she worked at, her first landing job was, uh, was at Campanile, um, uh, Nancy Silverton's uh, restaurant. And, uh, you know, I stayed in touch. And, like, it was like urban myth. Like, you know, a guy from Scottsdale, your old manager, is now the wine director of the Hotel Bel Air. And I was just like, wow, that is awesome. And I was uh, working in, uh, as a waiter in Flagstaff. And um, uh, by, by the time I was finishing college, a restaurant opened called uh, uh, Bricks, B-R-I-X, like mm-hmm. the wine mm-hmm. sugar level. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they had a really progressive wine program. And on Wednesdays, they did wine class. And I was hook, line, and sinker. Not because I thought I was going to be a sommelier. I, th- I didn't even know that career path. You know, mm-hmm. so much has changed in the last yeah. 30 years. Yep. Yep. But what I did know is I wanted to be in the restaurant business. And so I wanted to be the best waiter I could be. I needed to be the best back waiter I could be. I needed to be... I needed to, to, I knew I needed to go to the prep path of being a manager or a maitre d', and part of that would be wine. And if I was going to be great at hospitality for my guests, I needed to really study wine. It wasn't like, like I always love when people have these, like, they tell these stories, like the the clouds parted and these angels came down and they drank 1961 Latour and they became sommelier. <laughs> that didn't happen for me. It was not like that. It was like, wow, I want to be in this industry. This is another way to help take care of people. And I just, I loved it. Well, you know, I read an article um, a couple years ago where Jordan Salcedo interviewed you and you, I think it was like the death of the Psalm and you talk about um, how things have changed. But like one of the things in that article, you said like a lot of young Psalms, they eschew mentorship. Yeah. Talk, talk a little bit about that because I love what you said. You want to be the best waiter, the best back waiter, like like the humility. And, and also something you say in your post, you're like, what an honor is it for you to be bussing tables with your staff. So like talk about um, some of the things you see that have changed with, you know, the rise of the Psalm and good or bad that yeah. you've seen as a professional. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think it just comes down to one thing. And no one wants to talk about this. And we're at a moment. Um, we're at a moment where we have so, so, so societally different eras. And so the long story is, we have a societal group right now that really doesn't like mentorship. It's just a fact of life. Like, I mean, they named COVID Boomer Remover. Like I would have never, <laughs> That's crazy. when I was 26 years old, I would never have named a disease that killed my grandparents right, anything. Right. So right, you just have to put your lights on. The restaurant, and there, there's, scientifically, there's only a few things that you can be a prodigy in. Uh, mathematics, music, art, and I think chess. Those are the things that you can either become great through gift or hard work. Mm-hmm. The restaurant industry is not a prodigy industry. There, there is no prodigies. There's no hospitality prodigies. So once we've realized that that's the fact, it needs to be a step-by-step process. 
And so we just all have to say, look, I'm not going to, it's not going to happen in 18 months. It's not going to happen in three months. It's going to be a long path. So let's just all settle down Mm. and buckle up for the path. And that's where our industry is met with a lot of people who think it's a prodigy industry. It's not. There's so many little things, especially as you go up, uh, and I don't want to use the term food chain, but the different disciplines of restaurants. Mm. Because there's something great about a casual pizzeria or a casual osteria, but then there's also something very special about fine dining. And they're different disciplines and there's different nuances. And I work in all of them. Like I have four restaurants that are all different kind of, and I love them all. But what happens when you're doing a multi-course menu and, and kind of that precision doesn't happen overnight. You need so many Friday nights. You need so many Saturday nights. You need so many tough nights. You need to hit failure so you can break something open, look at it, and put it back together. And that only takes that takes time. Yeah. And we, we just need to be like okay with failure. We need to be okay with building a foundation and and that's I I there's so much great that the young generation has. They're so inquisitive. There's so many positives. So I'm not yeah, no, I'm, anti yeah. the the younger generation. I'm actually very inspired by them. Um, you know, I don't plan on ever having a TikTok account, but <laughs> the, they they are so there's so much positive. Yeah. But there's a one thing that really hurts in our industry is that it does take time. It takes disappointing. And it's a craft. And a craft, you know, it's funny. We love the word craft. Craft cocktail. Craft beer. Craft beer. Craft coffee. Yeah. But we don't want to craft ourselves. Like wow. the craft ourselves is takes decades. I you know, that was such a great article. I mean, it set off a lot of controversy just because also you said it's like the average sum, like being a being a sum, first of all, and I've discussed it with other guests, some of who worked with you. But like, first of all, when you see the Psalm series, which is great, but you have to understand how many Michelin starred restaurants are there in the United States that have a wine program. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like we're talking like there's whatever thirty eight teams in NFL. Like there's not there's only there's only so many jobs. Yeah, and I've got many people who play professional football, and maybe three years. I think you said like three years is the average NFL quarterback, right? You yeah. Get, you know, so. I love what you said about taking the time to craft yourself, you know, and I think that uh, the internet is is a wonderful thing, but it also makes everything look like it's overnight. So yeah, um, people don't see, you know, all the hard work. Um, so getting back to, um, you know, your your mentor, who's now the wine director at Hotel Bel Air. Um, so now he, you had a tasting group. Uh, where you and your coworkers would pull tips and purchase a bottle end of each, each week. Is that correct? Yeah. All right. So in, so, in Flagstaff, yeah, Arizona. In Flagstaff, yeah. So talk talk about that. Well, it, it's um, there's a few of us, and I was at this restaurant, Bricks. And so Arizona, I believe it is still this way, but back then was a, was a COD, cash on delivery state. Okay. So the owner, uh, rest in peace, uh, we lost him, Matt Bloomhart, and uh, Robert Fusco was the wine director. He would let us like, Whatever was our study topic, we would put in 25, maybe if it was a big week, 50 bucks each. 
and we'd put the order on on Thursday. We'd get delivered Friday. They would use that cash, pay for it, COD, and then we would get it Saturday night. And um, I just feel, I, I literally, that was 1992. That was 30 years ago. Mm. And I still love those memories so much because, look, I, I being my generation did have a bit of an advantage is the wine world was different then. Mm -hmm. You could, and I feel bad for, you could drink a lot of stuff throwing 25 to 50 bucks in. I mean, that was back in the day when Chateau and Estates was still around yep. and you could, they would keep inventory of Bordeaux. Like at, at like Southern Wine and Spirits, you could just look on the inventory sheet and go, oh, we want to try whatever it would be, like a vintage of Bordeaux with some age on it. Right. And we could pull and, it off. And, and, and you could pull it off. Like you could buy DRC back then still. Yeah. Like, like so many of these wines, um, everything changed that like there's some who will never have some of these amazing wines just because they're so cost prohibitive at this point. I mean, point. literally, what the price of buying a, a craft cocktail at a bar, right. we were all able to pitch in. And it really was... And awesome because we would, what we do is we'd study that whole week okay. on a region. So if we wanted to, like, if for fifty bucks we could each get, we could each get a Grand Cru bottle of something from the village of Polini and a, or the village of Shasania and and go to town. Yeah, and it was just really awesome. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so. How did you go from working at restaurants in Arizona, Flagstaff, Bricks, to working at the Little Now as a song, um, leading the restaurant to a multitude of awards and nominations? Well, um, I, I love Flagstaff as a town, but I, I needed to keep pushing and, and keep working on myself. And at that time, um, Tom Kaufman and Chris had come back from L.A. and they had opened a restaurant called Rancho Pino, which was – that, which opened in 92 or 93, had just closed this year. So they had a really long run. They divorced as a couple, but the restaurant was like, it was kind of like the Phoenix version of Chez Panisse. It was like really ingredient-driven and all this. And um, I went down to work for them. Okay. And trying my hardest. I was, And there, there just wasn't psalm jobs. The, like in the whole state. Right. And I was working for them. And then the next summer, um, I asked, I, I was kind of interviewing for some assistant psalm positions. And Tom Kaufman, I said, Hey, I heard there might be an assistant psalm position at the Little Nell. And he's like, And there was another hotel that was a, had just offered me an assistant psalm position. And he said, Slow down. You got to do the deal at the Little Nell. And this is what everyone should everyone should find a mentor that has some experience that you can bounce ideas off of, because that changed my life. If I would have done, and I'm not going to say the uh, the other hotel that I got the the psalm job offer at the assistant position at, but my life would not have been as rich and and as what happened. Mm -hmm. So Tom's like, I go, well, I don't know if I would be able to get that. He goes, Hold on, the chef there was my chef from the Hotel Bel Air. I'm gonna call right now. So here's a, an owner of a restaurant taking time for a young uh, person, calls up the the uh, 
the little Nell gets on the phone with George Mahaffey and says, hey, listen, I've got this young guy. He would be a great assistant. And we know you're looking for one. And, and literally, I'm embarrassed to say this, um, Tom Kaufman wrote my cover letter. He's like, <laughs> I'm going to make sure you get this job. And when I got the job, he said, okay, now settle down. This is a bit of a reach for you. Um, it's a big program, a lot of serious wine. This is what you've got to promise me. I said, whatever, Tom. He goes, you got to make sure you study every day. Mm. He goes, I want you to do whatever you can do. He goes, he goes, I want you to work six days a week. And I go, okay. If they let me, he goes, they'll let you. <laughs> and um, I said, why? He goes, because every day is a repetition. If you work six days for the next year and a half, two years, you've actually put yourself almost a year ahead. If you work a five-day work week, five times 50 is 250. Mm -hmm. Wow. And he goes, you're going to get more reps. They'll have something for you to do. And I did that. And uh, I did exactly what he told me. And it was, it was just, it was the right moment. I, I was there. I also had great, I didn't know what I was getting into, but Eric Calderon, the GM of the hotel, and then there was a, um, a uh, an F&B director named Connie Thornburg, who was a force of nature. She was a, a a single mom in food and beverage, food and beverage director of the Little Nell. She's now become one of the greatest hoteliers in North America. She was at uh, the Auberge Group, and then she ran Calistoga Ranch. Uh, she's now at Ojai Valley Inn as the executive director, but um, they were really great to me in mentorship. So I, I, I got really coddled. If you, you know, it's amazing. I think people could be coddled now if they allow mentorship. Um, I think there's a lot of people that want to help mentor, but people just don't want it. Mm -hmm. I was just so lucky that Eric and Connie and that whole team at the Little Nell was there for you. It was awesome. And how many years did you spend at the Little Nell? I was there about six years, yeah. And then when I left to go to the uh, French Laundry, uh, my best friend replaced me, okay. Richard Betts. Mm -hmm. And okay. then they really got a promotion because <laughs> Richard did a lot better job than I did. He, he was awesome. And he was w way funnier. And <laughs> uh, Thank you. How did, uh, how did the French Laundry come about? Did Thomas Keller notice you? Was he in the little nail in town? He said, who's this young man? Yes, something like that. You yeah. know, they, the, the, Thomas took over the French Laundry in, in 1994 okay. from the Schmidt family. And, um, you know, people think, like, the amount of work that guy did to get to taking over the French Laundry in 1994. He had lost his job at the Checkers Hotel. He was up in Napa. I think he was living in the guest house at Peter Michael doing like chef pop-ups for wineries. He was trying so hard. He, he got, he opened the French Laundry and for the pretty much the first six years, it was mostly a, a Napa Sonoma list. And the French Laundry was getting better and better and better each month, each year. And they wanted to kind of up the whole front of the house program and... Uh, and they wanted to have an all-world wine list, and that's what I did at the uh, at the Little Nell. 
and it was just like the right timing and um it was great i mean it was awesome he's like he's like he was really straightforward he's like you know some people are gonna hate you here in napa valley i was like oh great (laughs) i go why he goes well you know you're this is your first time working in wine country they don't want to see because my job was the French Laundry and also running the wine program at Bouchon. And so, like, you know, Bouchon was like the winemaker's watering hole. Right. And he's like, when you put that first Sancerre on by the glass and, and knock off a Napa SB, enjoy the experience. <laughs> and he was right. He gave me some great advice. He goes, make sure you probably keep that by the glass wine at least on by the bottle. Because this is – and he was right because at that time – there wasn't foreign wines to be consumed in restaurants in Napa. Mustards had a little bit, mm. but that was it. Mm. And so it was a really exciting time, and I, I learned a lot. And you know, I feel really lucky. I've been gone eighteen years from the French Laundry, and and Thomas Keller, um, you know, still reaches out to me, or I can reach out to him, and or Laura, and they're he's always he's like one of those guys. He's always there for you if you if you need something. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. You know, it's a good uh, point. We got to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back uh, with more with Bobby Stuckey. So we'll be back in a second, everybody. All right, are you ready for another great distributor to look for when shopping for fine wines and spirits? Let me tell you about Independence Wine and Spirits, or IWS. IWS is one of the hot, up and coming distributors of fine wines and spirits headquartered in New York City. Like Taub Family Selections, IWS is owned by the Tao family who have re-entered the New York wholesale market, bringing the family back to its roots in distribution where they held court from 1951 through 2004. IWS is proud to represent an exceptional portfolio of high-quality, terroir-centric, and historic producers from around the world, including Italy and France, where they have an exciting roster of burgeoning Vinrolins from Burgundy that are coming your way soon. They also have domestic producers such as La Coya, Cardinale, Staglin, El Molino, and many more. To learn more about IWS, go to independencewine.com. Ross Knoll Vineyard Wines and winemaker Justin Seidenfeld are making delicious handcrafted wines from Pinot Noir grapes sourced from the exceptional vineyards throughout the Russian River Valley. Personally, I found their 2021 rosé to be absolutely delicious. Go to rossknollvineyard.com and join their wait list to discover all of their limited production wines and to be notified of upcoming releases. Okay, we're back. So you uh, left there, you said, in about 2004. Is that correct? I opened Frosca in 2004. How did you meet your current business partner, Lachlan? um, Well, I came around the corner, and there was this like totally kind of uh, disheveled-looking – I think he had like two different socks on. I love it. In his clogs. And he was... Um, like the dude. I, mean, I, I mean, got the picture of the dude. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> But at the same time, he just... So he was working at the French Laundry, and he was friends with Nate Reddy, my uh, my assistant at, at, at the French Laundry. And um, they were really good friends, and I, I met him. And, you know, the, the French Laundry at that time, the, the kitchen people came from all over the world. So Lachlan was Canadian that he had just moved back from Paris. He, was, he had worked at Jamin uh, uh, in, uh, uh, in Paris, uh, Benoit Guichard's uh, two-star. And uh, he had landed at the French Laundry. I think he was originally going to either go to Michel Bras 
or he was going to come to New York. And then he got the gig at the French Water. He came there and he became friends with uh, Nate Reddy. And I remember the day I met him and, and um, we talked about cycling. We talked about wine and he was one of the, one of the few guys in the kitchen that was very curious about wine. And uh, he and I and, um, and and Nate would on nights off uh, get together. You know, we only got Thanksgiving night off. None of us were allowed to go see family. We had to work the next day on Friday. Mm. So we all went over to my house for Thanksgiving and drank some great wine. And we just became really, really good friends. That's and awesome. we shared a lot of the same things. I mean... He he's as much of a wine guy as he is. A, um, I mean, Rajat Par calls him the collector because he's <laughs> wow. like, because yeah. Locke's always like kind of looking around, seeing what's open, and I so, love it. Yeah. I love it. So, two thousand and four was also the year that you got your uh, MS diploma, correct? Yeah. Now, from the Psalm movies, we all know it's a very difficult exam, one of the most difficult in the world. How was it for you as someone who's dyslexic? How were you <laughs> able to study and pass that? Well, um, you know, I could, I, um, look, I, I, I've, I passed service in theory twice mm -hmm. because how that works, you know, when we talked earlier, you said we've got to have failure yeah. to be able to break something open and, and put it back together. Well, I got to practice what I preached with the <laughs> MS. I, I had a lot of failure. Um, I fail. I really had text anxiety for that blind tasting. And uh, so I had to do the service in theory twice. I passed it mm -hmm. twice. Mm -hmm. um, it was really hard. And I, what I realized it was I wasn't going to put a timeline on it. I was just going to do it mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. I never wear – no one's ever seen me wear my pin in the dining room floor. That's not what I've ever wanted it for. It mm -hmm. was my own journey. And um, my wife, Danette, I would leave the French Laundry and I would drive home – and uh, we had this um, kitchen uh, island table that was my mom's prep kitchen from her catering agency. Oh, wow. And Danette, cool. Danette would sit on the um, kitchen island, give me my Anchor Steam beer, and I would it'd be like 1 o'clock in the morning. I would walk around the kitchen island, and she would sit there uh, in her pajamas, and I would drink my beer, and she would go over the notes that I had problems with mm that morning. So I would study an hour every day before I'd go into the, my long day at the French Laundry. And I would just, I wasn't trying to kill anybody or be compatible. I was just trying to do it on my own time. But Danette, AKA the D-bomb, she was so supportive. And those beers tasted great, man. Long <laughs> shift, Danette sitting on the counter. <laughs> You know, cold anchor steam, yeah. original was, like craft brews. Oh, I loved it. It's <laughs> awesome. I still have one every night after work. <laughs> That's so cool. I, I think Danette probably should have taken the exam. She had, <laughs> she had seen so much of my notes yeah. and done, and like every time she would blind taste me, she would taste through the wines herself. So she'd probably be the next one in the family if she wanted to. <laughs> That's really cool, man. So, um, <clears throat> You talked about earlier, and uh, um, going back to well, when you went to Colorado, you landed there because uh, her uh, her mother had passed away, and mm -hmm. her father was living there alone. Uh, what inspired you to open uh, your first restaurant, Frasca? Well, um, you know, I was very um, in love with um, 
wines of Northern Italy, specifically Friuli, Venezia, Julia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had Danette and I and Nate Reddy, and when we were all at the laundry and uh, on our vacation, we all, Nate Reddy, Danette, Lachlan, and I went to Friuli. And I was just, this is like this North Star. And we were eating at a restaurant that we still eat at, that we still stay at, uh, called La Subita. It's in the, it's right on the Slovenian border. It's run by the Cirque family. Um, and uh, we were, I, I remember the day, it was, it was pouring rain outside. Uh, uh, my, I was outside on the phone because we were trying to, I, I was checking in on my, 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 my brother was, uh, first boy was being born. And uh, it was about almost 20 years ago. And, and, um, I went in and and uh, Laura Donna Cirk, the the matriarch, she was like carving this stinko de vitello, this uh, veal shank dish with these roasted vegetables in the panju. She would like was carving it tableside for us, and uh, I'm, I'm eating it with Lachlan. Lachlan's like, dude, this is it. <laughs> this is this is we. This is this is our north star. I, I swear to God, it was that dish, and I don't think, I, I, I don't know. I'll have to ask Lachlan. I bet you we've, maybe we've eaten there a hundred times now. Mm-hmm. And I think we always, when we have new guests, because we always want to see what Sandro, the chef's doing new. Yep. So we always feel bad, but we, we always order that yeah. that Vitello <laughs> just so the the other people at the table can see this whole mojo happen yeah yeah that's really cool man that's so cool um what is it about that region i mean you do i mean you love that region what is it about it is it is it the mountains what is what makes it so special you know there's so much to add up there um first of all i I have to be very mj i've got to be really honest i think it was like one of the luckiest things in my life Mm that region mm-hmm. and not just for me but for my whole company because it's been such a beautiful north star for us because if you are a restaurant that's lucky enough to be around for almost two decades uh, the restaurant industry is really tough to have something that you can keep refreshing the team on over and over and over it's been really helpful mm-hmm. but for is this interesting spot where it would be like if the west side highway was the adriatic and 20 miles past it was the Colio and the Colorientale. And another 30 miles past that was Aspen, Colorado. Mm. So within <laughs> 60 miles, you go from Adriatic to really incredible mountains. And um, so that's really special. The culture you have, you're really technically the southernmost spot of the Austrian empire or what historically was. Mm -hmm. You're the northernmost spot of what was the Italian culture Mm -hmm. and you're the Western border of what was Eastern Europe. Mm. Okay. All living together. And so that's really fascinating. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think a lot of, uh, I've got these friends who own a restaurant and they were talking like a lot of, like Sicily, same thing. Anytime you have a place where a lot of cultures cultures collide. collide, the food's freaking amazing. Food's amazing. I think there's also a the difference. Culture. The culture. Because because everybody had to get along. Yeah. 
like 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 historically people learned how to get along so yeah yeah so that's but that's i mean i could just see that's just a special place and you know everybody knows tuscany and piedmont and and i love those regions yeah yeah but like to have this restaurant you focus on um let's um talk a bit about so like in you know having your restaurant like you've also spawned some you've helped guide some people i know dustin wilson considers you a mentor uh I got to run with one of my former employees today, Grant Reynolds. Okay, nice. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Audrey Frick was on here. She yeah. told the story of how when, when Jeb Dunicola said, listen, you're going to New York. You're going to work at One White Street. And you're going to be the Italian wine critic. So, uh, why? How did, how did like... By the way, Audrey, talk about work ethic. <laughs> wow. She's a beast. It's amazing. She's ama- We love her. She's, she's awesome. Yeah. 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 She's, she's supersonic. Um how did Colorado become like this, like, like that whole Aspen area? How did it become like this, like little what's the word incubator for like so many top psalms? Well, I think a couple things. I think I think Jay Fletcher up in Aspen gets a lot of credit. Mm-hmm. He really mentored Richard Betts and I. Okay, but he also said you got to be there for other people. Mm-hmm. You got if if other people want mentorship, you've got it. And look, it's not easy being, uh, you know, if you're going to invest time in someone's growth, that takes energy and all that. Yep. And Jay made it very clear that that was really something you should do. And then I think one thing for Frosca, and not me, but the wine team does that over and over. And I, I don't want to take credit for it. Like Carlin Carr is the wine director. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was just seeing some emails when I was walking over here. She was like setting up mentorship programs for i mean she sets up mentorship programs for people who don't even work for us mm. you know and uh so there's this the the frosca kids and it's not just uncle bobby it's jeremy schwartz it's tyler potts who's now in the city here but um trey and 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 rihanna and and ian the whole team they're good at giving back to mm. to the people coming up yeah, that's awesome. That's really incredible. Um, shifting gears a little bit, you and Lachlan launched Scarpetta Wine in 2007. So what was uh, the motivator? What was the force behind uh, having your own wine? Mm. So when you enter um, a Frosca, which is a neighborhood restaurant in Friuli, mm-hmm. you might be given a Tayut, T-A-J-U-T, um, it's like a, it's like this much mm-hmm. of like a little free, back then it was called Tokai. Uh, now it's called Friolano, like aromatic white wine. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so we, I had this dumb idea when we opened, <laughs> I said, Hey, Locke, we gotta be like super authentic. He's like, Oh yeah, of course we are. Prosciutto San Daniele, Montazio cheese. I was like, dude, we got to tie the regulars. He's like, well, that sounds stupid. Like giving wine away. We're, we're just trying to get open. <laughs> and I said, no, just people who like really come back a lot. We just start them with a little Tayute. And we were, going, we, we were you know, going through maybe a couple bottles every couple days. And then this, this lady came in like four times in a month. And so we were Tayuting her, right? Because we were doing what we were saying. It was like, our, we, like, wow, this is a new regular. We're only open like four months. This lady's really into us. 
and we were so we didn't know we were new to town the um, the food writer was named Kyle Wagner we thought it was a guy it's a pseudonym we thought it was a guy yeah well, now we're friends with Kyle Wagner. Yeah. It is definitely not a guy. <laughs> it is an incredible <laughs> lady. And she writes in our review. She, she wrote a very nice, very beautiful review that uh, actually TK put on the pass at Per Se and French Laundry when it came out. But uh, uh, she mentioned, oh, and if you, know, if you show up there, you get a half a glass of wine for free. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it was like, like so much and Locke was like you dummy this is just too much what's this is like three cases a week i was like oh yeah and i didn't go to mit so i like three cases a week that's 150 cases a year yep made a mistake here and you couldn't take it away right no 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 so we um richard betts um we were telling him this story and because he was making bets and Joel and he was making wine in, in Fr uh, France and Australia and California. He goes, I'll go over to Friuli with you. I'll show you how to do it where you can go maybe buy a couple barrels yeah. of, of, and you can have your own Taiyut wine. I'm like, great. And Lachlan's like, yeah, now you go fix that, Bobby. <laughs> And, uh, what a punishment. You go and, to Italy and fix well, this he came, he, he came with me. <laughs> he came with me. And that's how it started. It was like yeah. we we wanted to bottle some wine for the Tayyip mistake that uh, I had created. And uh, that's how it started. And so Richard Betts really helped us. And it's funny. Um, it's the chef, not the sommelier, who runs Scarpetta. Like Lachlan really runs the company okay. now. Mm -hmm. I help. Mm -hmm. uh, I have my duties in the company, but he's really the president, CEO of Scarpetta Wine Company. It's so funny that it was like such a, a disastrous <laughs> thing that we'd done. It's now that's like a really legitimate uh, small business that we get to run. That's really cool. Thank you, Kyle Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> um. So after Frasca, you uh, you said you have four restaurants. So what, what was the progression? What was the next restaurant? And what was the theory behind um, these different types of – they all have different themes and different hospitality kind of methods, correct? Yeah. yeah. So we, we, uh, we, had, uh, we, we had been in, in our location for about six years, and uh, the, the business next to us had gone out of business, um, and we were going to do a remodel, and we had an employee – Named Jordan Wallace, aka Bruiser, not because he's a bruiser, but he was really sensitive when he first came to work with us. So we used to joke with his mom that he bruised, bruised easily. easily. Yeah. <laughs> so Bruiser um, really loved, wanted to do something other than Friulano food. He was really into Neapolitan style pizza. So we moved him to Naples, Italy. Um, and he went and worked at La Notizia while we built out the space next to us. And that's where Pizza Locale is. And it's interesting. Bruiser still works for us, not in the Frosca Hospitality Group, but he works. We have a four fast casual versions of PL and he he's the culinary director of those. So he's still mm. with us. He's still bruising it. And, um, and so that's how that happened. And then um, we made a, a long-term employee, uh, Peter Hoagland, uh, a partner and right when Scarpetta was kind of growing a lot and uh, someone had to have their eye on that all the time. That's a, that's a serious business. Lachlan was going to do that. 
Uh, and um, we, we brought Peter on a, as a business partner, which has been one of the greatest things ever. And we, at that time, we, uh, we had been in contact with a gentleman named Mark Falcone. Uh, he's a developer in Denver, really, really visionary guy. Um, and he took this piece of property at the base of the cha- train station, um, and he was developing that area, and he developed a hotel. And he, we had been talking to him for years about trying to do something together. And he's like, you should put something here. And that's how Tavernetta came into place. And and we didn't want to do another Frosca. We we just didn't think Frosca has its own terroir. And it's not, we wanted to do something maybe a little bit, Frosca is quite fine dining. But, but also the terroir of Frosca is not me. It's Rose Voda who's been the GM. She's been with us since day one. Uh, it's the team there that that's Frosca. You can't kind of duplicate that. Yeah. So, um, so that's what we did for, that's how we did Tavernetta. And then, um, and then Sunday vinyl is our wine bar and that's, uh, right outside the front door of Tavernetta. Yeah. That, that one, cause I'm, I'm love music and wine. Like that's a cool concept. So, um, where'd that idea come from? Just, we just, we're going to have, a, we're going to have the dopest wine bar in America. I mean. Well, we, we, we wanted to have a wine bar. We, um, we wanted to have a wine bar and I wanted music to be really a piece of it. My, uh, Danette and I, uh, I normally only take Sunday nights off and we, uh, listen to vinyl and drink some wine on Sunday nights. And we were like throwing all these like, like obscure clash tune ideas on the wall, thinking of a name. And I was actually having lunch at the modern Mm-hmm. A few years ago here during uh, during La Palais week, like it is right now, uh, D- I met Danette there for lunch. Danette knows how to get me to go to an art museum is like choose an art museum that has a great restaurant wine list there you go. for lunch. Very smart lady. Um, so I, I meet her over there and we're, we're having some wine and a guest came up and was like, hey, uh, you're Bobby. I said, yeah, I'm Bobby. And, he, and he's like, and you're D stuck bomb. That's Danette's <laughs> yeah, know, Instagram handle. <laughs> and she's like, I am. <laughs> and, and he was like, um, Hey, I just got to tell you, I loved your post a couple weeks ago. I never knew there was such a thing as Ethiopian, like funk. Mm. I was like, Oh, and I was like, Oh, and then he mentioned, Oh, and then I saw that you did this other Ethiopian artist, Ailu Mesfen. As a vinyl, I said, "Yeah, we're both. We both like Ilu Mesfen." And uh, he's like, "Oh, I loved it. I can't wait for your next Sunday night vinyl post." And then one of the one of the employees there commented on that, and I was telling Peter Hoagland that when I got back, my business partner, he's like, "Okay, dummy, that's the name." <laughs> that's right? Awesome. He's like, "Dude, there it is, right there. Yeah. Like it's sitting in front of you." Yeah. Now I I have a. Uh... I before I started Black Wine Guy Instagram, I have a personal Instagram, and for like three years, it was just, I was just cafe vinyl. It was just I would listen every morning. I wake up, me and my wife, and we'd listen to vinyl and have coffee, and it was just an album cover with a cup of coffee. So, uh, isn't that so awesome? It totally resonates with me, man. And and there's something about like the 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 putting a, a piece of vinyl on and like 
it's what it's like wine, right? Like it's like you pull it out, you know, and then does it have does it have the paper liner or is it the plastic liner? And you pull it out, yeah. You blow it off, and then you you know, and then like so good. and it pops, you know. But same with the wine, like you cut the foil, right? And you put, line up the cork. There's these rituals that go with it. That just make it so really freaking cool. Yeah. And just like wine, um, records are alive. Like they have all the ambient sound. You know what I mean? Like, like it's not wiped out on digitals. Like, you know, there's this. Uh, there's a point in Green Onions, Booker T and G's, where like the, the drummers like scrapes the mic and they, they, didn't, they didn't cut it out. Like there's there's yes, all there. that cool stuff in vinyl. Um, so yeah, I can't wait to get out there. I, when you, I saw when gotta, I saw it, I was like, that was just dope. I'm like, this is my kind of spot. You know, there's a there's a company called VMP Vinyl Me Please. Uh, they they reissue like uh, music and and repress it, and they are actually building what should be the most state of the art. Pr- vinyl pressing plant in North America that's been ever built. They're doing it in Denver, like right now. It's like under construction. That's great. I, I my wife gave me a subscription one Christmas, so I know vinyl me, please. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cameron Schaefer's great. The, the CEO, he's awesome. He's well, big Colorado wine guy. Is a good place to do it too, right now. Just so that's awesome. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit because you, you know you have four restaurants. And when did Sunday Vinyl open up? Uh, strategically right before COVID. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's talk about, um, what happened with COVID, um, particularly, uh, in light of, um, so here you are, you're, you're a restaurateur, you're an entrepreneur, you have a restaurant group, you have four restaurants, you just launched a new restaurant and then COVID-19 comes down the pipe. What were your first thoughts? Hmm. Well, the first like day I just thought everything was gonna be okay because, um, I thought I knew how insurance policies worked. Mm-hmm. My father was an insurance guy. I was like, oh, I've got my business interruption. I've paid for it for 15 years of premiums. I've never had a claim. And it was Monday the 16th. Yeah, Monday the 16th. I We got closed by, uh, that was when we had our closure from the government. Uh, I sent, send on the, uh, Alicia, my uh, who you've been in email before, mm-hmm. Alicia was the one who put together our claim sent send mm-hmm. and within like 10 minutes she's like bobby i already got a denial back damn i was like wait that can't happen for <laughs> business interruption they got to come up and look at the was place. that like the, the john grissom movie where like the first thing you deny right away like, yeah like <laughs> totally yeah and so i called my father and i was like hey uh, uh, dad larry um this just happened he's like "Ooh, that's not good he goes that he goes for a call center to get an email like that and deny They've probably planned. They plan exactly. What I'm saying they, they like had the layers. They 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 were like, like 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 the moat was raised. Exactly, and that happened to every single business in the country. I mean, and then I started calling people. I called Thomas. Check this out. Thomas not only had business interruption, same policy since 1994. He had gotten some idea a few years before to pay for a, a more expensive policy to get a rider mm-hmm. for like disease or whatever. Act of God or whatever they were yeah, calling yeah, it. Yeah. Saying, yeah. He was paying for this uh, bacterial whatever rider and he still got denied. And then you're like, ooh. And then uh, two days later, a bunch of us um, got on a call 
And we're like, I just think we just realized, we didn't know what was going on, but we did realize that we have a great industry and it was in a really fragile situation. Mm -hmm. And then we soon realized we did not have a group to advocate for independent restaurants. There's a big difference. Like, yes, there's the National Restaurant Association. They do their thing, but they can't be laser focused on independence if you're really working for franchises and chains. It's it's okay. It's like you can't be everything to everyone, mm -hmm. but there wasn't someone for the 500,000 independent restaurants. And that's kind of how the IRC started. And, and it, there was few wins along the way, some great wins, and, and we really realized that this this industry was so important. But, uh, you know, yesterday was kind of a depressing day. <laughs> um, the, the, we, we got that one, we got the restaurant revitalization fund put in a year ago. Mm -hmm. uh, Senator Schumer put it in at a truncated version, 28.6 billion, we had asked for a uh, hundred billion. And it was gone within 24 hours. And uh, there's 177,000 restaurants that had been sitting in the queue. I have two of them that were in that queue uh, since May. And we found out yesterday, not just the people in the IRC, the Independent Restaurant Coalition, but all 177,000 restaurants found out that we did not get put in the omnibus uh, package. And so that, that's where we are today. So... <clears throat> I mean, it's been a long road. Um, first of all, what you said was it twenty eight point four billion or something like. People don't realize like money goes so fast, so fast. It's crazy. Like, like, um, but you must have learned a lot about how our government works during this process, right? So I did. Because um, I've, I mean, actually, there's a movie out now on Som TV called Same Restaurants yes. that came out a couple weeks ago. Um, what was this like for you? I mean, at first, I mean, I think you have like this servant's heart, right? So, of course, you're worried about your restaurants, but what like had you get in action, like really to like build the coalition? Because I know you're one of the co-founders. I mean, like what was, as you said, you started making phone calls, but what was, what was the driving force behind that? Well, I know enough about our industry and I love our industry and- there is not an industry like this. If you're, we, we have more single mothers raising children in our industry than any other industry. If you are new to this country and you don't speak the language, we're here for you. If you make a mistake when you're 19 years old and have a felony conviction, everyone deserves a chance to rehabilitate themselves if they want to. The problem is if you want to go drive for a linen company or a, a wine distributor, you can't get a job as a, a felon for a lot of companies. The restaurant industry is there for you if you want to do that. And I've been in the industry long enough to know like, whoa, look, our industry is not perfect. There's a lot of things that need to be changed and there's a lot of things that need to work on, but it is, it's a fact of life. We, we can be there for so many people um, and that's what worried me the most. And that's what freaked me out so much. Yeah. I mean, for yourself as someone who, um, 
what do you call it? learning disability, whatever it's yeah, called. Yeah, dyslexia. Dyslexia. I mean, like you were able to find a home. Yes. You know? I mean, I, I don't know what I would have, what would have happened to me without the restaurant business. And look, you don't, not everyone has to be in ownership. Mm -hmm. Like I would have been just great and happy working for TK the whole time too. Like there's a lot of great positions and a lot of great things. And, and there's a, yeah, I just was really worried about our industry. Yeah. Yeah. So what was, um, <clears throat> let's talk about, um, the bill passing process that most Americans don't understand. Like why is restaurant aid tied to someone's, I'm making this up, but it's for example, fracking bill. Oh, so I think there's um I think there's like um eight thousand bills presented a year and two hundred and fifty. I don't have the exact number. Yeah, become law. Currently, doesn't matter. I'll be honest. I'm a Democrat. There's brilliant people that are Democrats, and there's some people not so brilliant. There's Republicans. That's not what I am. There's some smart people. There's some not so smart people. But the problem is right today, no one's getting along. It's a real serious issue mm -hmm. and they've got to fix it. They've got to learn to work for their constituents, mm -hmm. not their party. That should be not allowed. Mm -hmm. So if you look how few standalone bills get passed, mm -hmm. it's not going to happen. Because with the filibuster, there's no way you're going to get all of the all the Republicans and ten Dems, or all of the Dems and ten Republicans to get a standalone bill. They just they're more and more becoming extinct animals. There isn't that many standalone bills, and I all both sides of the aisle were trying everything to attach to the omnibus and squeeze something else out, and. And that's where you get into really uh, dicey situations for all of the United States of America is when you have an industry, well, so the independent restaurants mm -hmm. are the, we're, we're like 11 or 12 times the size of the airline industry. They got a shit, they always get a shit ton of money. They get, they got a lot. And we, um, we're just an industry that- um, but I mean, a lot of people work on a plane. You got the pilot. Yeah. You got like maybe I, 10 people. On a I think plane? it was seventy-seven thousand dollars per employee they got. That yep, that's a lot. Um, so so they um, that's like double what the average American makes. Yeah, and they got that per employee. Wow, um, it's a corporation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and they, they didn't kick it down to their employees. I'm no. not certain of that. And so you you have this situation where you don't get standalone bills passed. And so you're trying to attach it. And now it's, you know, they say that saying, uh, you learn how the sausage is made, man, I did not yeah. know. And now I know, yeah. and it really freaks me out. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, when we were kids growing up. It's so true. Uh, Schoolhouse Rock, I'm just a bill. I'm alone, oh, yeah. I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Like they were telling us back in the seventies, yeah, bills don't go anywhere. They just sit on Capitol Hill. Yeah, and you know what's so crazy? <laughs> There, there's a couple people that I was on uh, Zoom calls with over and over that are set famous senators on both sides of the aisle, mm -hmm. famous Congress people on both sides of the aisle. 
that they need to rewatch that yeah. cartoon. Yeah. Because they don't even understand. They're they elected official. They should like learn how they're, what they're doing does to people. Yeah. I think um, it's, it's scary how far removed and, you know, we grew up in a time when the system's not perfect, but like there were, there were moderates. The, the goal was there were moderates. There was, there was, you had a, you had a Joe Lieberman who was a right leaning Democrat and you had a John McCain who was like a left leaning Republican and they would go back and help do the deals. But now who's it's, nobody's doing that. Yeah. It's nuts. Like everybody's like, fuck you. Yeah. We, you don't got the votes and that's it. I think we, our bill did not get put in. I really believe this. And this, I, if he's listening, he can, or someone wants to let him hear this. I think Mitch McConnell and the Republicans didn't want to give Chuck Schumer and uh, President Biden a win after, um, and they would rather hurt, you know, 11 million jobs. And that's wrong. That is wrong. I mean, I am not registered anything, <laughs> but I do know McConnell is he like he's called like the Grim Reaper of bills. Like he he just sh he is shuts shit down. He's he's notorious for yeah. it. Yeah, he shut down Supreme Court fucking yeah. nomination hearings, which is I went to law school and I'm not even that good to assume, but like which to me is unconscionable. Like they're this like. The system's not perfect, but could we at least the system work itself out instead of like co-opting it? Yeah, you know? totally. Um, I mean, you're an elected official right. for your constituents, right. not for your base. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a very interesting thing, and it's it's really sad because you know um, I know a lot of those famous sinners. They like to eat out of fine restaurants and be waited on and served. <laughs> oh, they love it. <laughs> but then I'm like, well, you know. Let them eat Chipotle, I guess, is what they're they yeah, I think they I think they think of us as just, I don't know what they think. I, 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 I've talked to over 100 congressmen and senators over the last two years. I have no idea what they think of us, but it's 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 something. I mean, but you've been all over the news on this thing. And I mean, I mean like, I, I watched the movie on Psalm TV and like, you're just, you're just Zoom after Zoom after Zoom. How like how do you find the stamina to do that, man? I mean, uh, it, MJ, it was it's been a wild journey. Uh, you know, my poor wife. She she talks about it like we we, we live in a smaller house and uh, I don't have an office, so it's at that kitchen table which mm -hmm. you see in the the movie a lot. And and Danette said it was like um, um, contact high. But the reverse, right. contact negativity, because <laughs> she would down. she would hear these calls and they would be like, she, she like I get done with a call between it and she'd be like, whoa. So it was it was just a grind. We we were really the people, not just me, everyone in that group mm -hmm. on the IRC who have worked so hard, Erica, everyone, Carolyn Stein, Tom Colicchio, everybody. Um. It was uh, it was a grind, and um, we were kind of like uh, building an airplane while it was flying. None of us knew what we were doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tom had done some some uh, advocacy work, but I had never called a congressman or a senator, or I had no idea. So, and most of us didn't. Yeah. And so it was really just you were trying to figure it out as you went. We naively believe that people get elected and they're going to take care of us. 
in, in this country. Yeah. Um, and uh, I do want to give a shout out. Senator Hickenlooper got voted in uh, 2020. He hadn't even been sworn in to office. And he reached out and wanted to hear about the bill backwards and forwards, which I thought was like, that was like the, I was like, there's someone, he, he doesn't even have a horse in the race yet. He's not even allowed to vote on this. And he's trying to get himself ready for in a month. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah. So like you said, yesterday was a sad day. Um, uh, what's next for the Independent Restaurant Coalition? Mm. You know, I think we're going to, we, we need to be here. We need to have a seat at the table for the independents out there. Um, you know, we've only had one singular focus, and it was the RRF, the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. We're going to see what's next, what we need to work on. But you don't want to dismantle something because we do know our industry needs this so much. And to do that, we got to be there working on it. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's uh, you can't dismantle it. Don't listen no. to me. But but like, it, I mean, it because all these other industries have lobbyists, right? So the pressure needs to still be exerted. One hundred percent. And uh, and you know, it's one of those things where you know, let's talk about individual measures. Like, what did you do to keep some of your people working during the pandemic? So you're doing all this stuff to help the industry as a whole, but then you have to run your restaurant group. Yeah. So what we did was um, everything got closed in Colorado. Um, Peter, Lachlan, and I uh, sat down and we took our savings and we wrote everyone an insurance check through July because we didn't know what was going on. This was, uh, And so we had this graph to the day of when we were going to run out of money. Your burn rate, yeah. We had our burn rate, and it was like, I think we had we had a burn rate until like June 20th, mm. that if we could be open by June 20th, but we had committed this whole thing. So um, there was a robust program for um, staff on unemployment and things like that, especially if we uh, could get them all their insurance. So even if someone wasn't on insurance, they could get on insurance. Mm -hmm. We were going to pay it. And they had their insurance paid full coverage for four months. Boom. So no one, that was at the start. And then uh, one of our guests uh, called me, Jason Mendelson. Uh, and he's like, dude, you got to do a, f uh, I want you to like engage in a, um, start thinking of how you can do something to, to, raise money for your staff, but not just your typical GoFundMe, something where you're doing something for the guests, mm -hmm. for your employees. And so we, so Carlin, who's our wine director, Carlin and I and Chef Eduardo and Peter and Aaron Palmer and Alicia and Jody, kind of like the core executive team, hatched this idea called Frosca at Home when we were closed and it was Carlin would find a winemaker. We would interview him via Zoom, mm -hmm. edit it, and that's right when Colorado had said you could uh, sell wine to go. So we would do on Sundays, and at, it was called Frosca at Home. Chef Eduardo, we would film him, and he would walk everyone through how to cook 
their dinner. Then all of the executive team would package up in different things, whatever that week's theme was. So like Eduardo's wife, Kelly, is from Korea. So we did a, like a Korean barbecue night. We did a Spanish paella night because he's originally from Spain. We did a free, like we did different things each night. And our guests were so incredible. There were some guests that did every one of these mm. every Sunday. And so they would come, we would put it in their car, they would go home. It was pretty much all done. They just had to like mm -hmm. kind of chef it up a little bit, right. watching Eduardo, right. watching Carlin and I with the winemaker. And that's what we did for the time where we were closed. And um, we all learned a lot. It was really stressful. Um, every restaurant had a different thing of what they did, but that's what we did. And yeah, let's not have to ever go back to that. <laughs> and then, um, then kind of some of the uh, restrictions were lifted and then you uh, – I think you're one of people to start doing like yurts, little teepees. Yeah, yeah. How, what was that like? I just saw the scene where like you guys like it's like IKEA. Like, oh shit! Got, oh my god! What was that like, dude? And like the team just freaking going for it, and the team like Rose Voda and the Frosca team walking around like with we had these fondue pots we were doing in the middle of snowstorms, like running out to the yurts. Yeah, it was. It has been a journey. Yeah. It's been crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in 2019, Frosca won the James Beard Award for Outstanding Service. I read that you made the suggestion that the James Beard Foundation change the name of the award to the James Beard Award for Outstanding Hospitality, which they apparently adopted. Yeah. Okay. Um, please explain the distinction in your mind between service and hospitality. Yeah, service is like, you know, you could go to the, the gas station. You can go to Discount Tire, get your tires changed. That's a great service. <laughs> and actually, they're really nice at that, at Discount maybe, Tire. Maybe in your town. <laughs> but, but, you know, like, that's a service. You do something to someone. Hospitality is how you make someone feel. And I always worried about those, those, those service awards. They're too focused on it's a whole team. It can't just be the maitre d' and the psalm and the head waiter. It's got to be everybody. Hospitality has to be like how you treat the guy who delivers the fish when he comes in the back door, those things. And, mm. and, and chefs can be part of the hospitality program too. I, I remember when we won that award, Daniel Balud was the guy who called the award. Like He was the one who was the presenter of that specific award. And that's where I was walking up there seeing Danielle about to give it to us. And that's where I came up with that idea because Chef Danielle's a, a chef, but he really cares about people. Mm -hmm. So we all can be. So that, that was my thought behind that. Yeah, that's very cool. So, you know, you took a hit with the IRC and the Restaurant Revolution Act, but like, how are you feeling about the future 2022 for Frasca Food and Wine? How are you feeling these days? Well, I think um, I, I'm not as positive. I'm pretty positive. I'm not like Larry, my dad, mm. the lizard, who's like <laughs> so positive. It's just nuts. But um, Promoted to public school, Larry. Yeah, I mean, just so good. It's brilliant. Oh, my, there's, there's, I mean, it's a whole list of brilliance all the time for that guy. Um, but he, um, I, I, I'm very positive too. And I, I think this industry, I think more and more people realized how great our industry is 
like guess. Now what we need to do is journalists need to stop. Like journalists really like saying how negative the guests are. That's like the buzz mm-hmm. topic right now. Yeah, that was a lot during the pandemic. It's like people are being rude. Yeah. And you know, they, they don't want to wait for their to-go orders. They're not tipping. Yeah, yeah, I remember all that stuff. I think that was just lazy journalism. Yeah. Because I read every, because I can't be in all four restaurants. Right. I'm in one every night, yep. but I read the, the log every night of all of them. We have not had an uptick of that. People are generally great. What I do hope happens, and this is what I really hope happens, is more people come back to our industry. And I don't have the answer how to get these people back, but I want people to come back because this is the perfect time to get back into our industry because there's going to be so much growth. And, you know, if you're a company that promotes from within, people are going to be leapfrogging things that used to take years and they'll be able to really cut their teeth and, 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 and do different things. Yeah. And, and look, I hear these things all the time about, well, um, I hear from, I have 200 employees. I listen to them and they talk to me mm-hmm. and I, and like, we, we're a company where we provide a 4% matching 401k mm-hmm. and have, and have had, we have done that for 16 years. Uh, we, we had a, uh, an insurance program and, and PTO and, um, uh, uh, things like that. Th- those packages are there. We're not a unicorn. But what young restaurant people I want them to do is we're not the only ones doing that. Go find restaurants to do that. Maybe you go work at a hotel restaurant. It might not be as sexy and might not look as cool on your Instagram account. But if you really go to these places that treat you professionally and then other restaurants will have to adopt those policies, if if people only went to work at the places that – provided those things, mm-hmm. then if that would that is the way to get everyone to do that. Mm-hmm. But the employees have to make that really forefront of their brain to do that. And that that can be their revolution. Go work at these places that provide that and then you will get other places to do it. Mm, I love it. I love that. So you said early on in our conversation, like there wasn't like a, this, the, the heavens parted and he was like, oh, I'm going to be in this industry. But I will ask this question. You're in, you're in Friuli. Um, you know, you had your little Tokai. But was there a bottle of wine there where you were just like, oh, now this is wine for me? I, I've had many because I love wine so much and different experiences are, are different. But I, I have a lot of things that, and it, they're, they're all different types. Like, of sure. course, you're going to hear the like, Dinette and I in Piedmont with Roberto Conterno and lucky enough to drink 85 Monfortino <laughs> with him. Yeah, really special freaking yeah, moment. Yeah, like, yeah. I might start crying thinking about it right now. Um, very good vacation day for D-Bomb and I. Um, but also there's, like, moments that are just, you know, I think about, um, you know, I, I, I went uh, – my mom and dad met me in France uh, in the late '90s, and just uh, sitting on uh, uh, s- sitting in Avignon after wine tasting in the Southern Rhone, and just watching my parents be really happy and things like that. Like those are great moments too. Yeah. 
I, I don't think my dad needed to drink the whole magnum of 99 to make a big gal by himself, but it worked. Wow. You know? Larry, oh, my yeah. kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. I He's going to listen to this. Up to pop. Yeah, yeah. High oh, alcohol. Mad too. Yeah. Dude, man, he went in for it. Mean, that's like at least 15. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's... Yeah, he went in. Yeah, oh, he did. <laughs> two bottles. I'll take two. <laughs> yeah. I think he was I one guess who... he, he was feeling it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think he calls these things half magnums. That's awesome. That's freaking awesome, man. Oh, my God. <clears throat> well, Bobby, again, what an honor. Thank you for coming in. I know you're in town for La Poly, and, uh, you know, we've been talking about this for a minute. Uh, and just and and I am coming out Sunday Vinyl Denver. We're going to do a BWG night. We're going to do, do a playlist. We're gonna, we're gonna it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Um, tell people how they can find you, how they can be a part of uh, what you're doing, Independent Wrestle Coalition, Frosco Food and Wine Group. Where can people find you? Yeah, well, you can find uh, – let's let's talk with the about the Independent Restaurant sure. Coalition first because there's so many people that need to know about that. That's uh, www.saverestaurants.com. Uh, my organization is the Frosca Hospitality Group, which is Frosca Food and Wine in Boulder. Pizza Locale, Tavernetta in Denver, and Sunday Vinyl. You can find those. And um, I can't wait to everyone listening come in and I get to bust your table. I love that. So, everybody, this is your boy MJ. Um, another just magical episode of the podcast. I want to thank you again for coming in. Uh, make sure you guys check out the show notes. We'll have all the information where you can find it about the Independent Restaurant Coalition and the Frost Food and Wine Group, but definitely saverestaurants.com. Um, if you haven't already, check out the documentary on Psalm TV. Um, until the next time, uh, this is to all the Mavericks, the uh, philosophers, the deep thinkers, and the wine drinkers. It's your boy, MJ. Peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. 